Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Monash University, and thanks all for coming. And welcome to Renewable Ajahn Kalyana. Um, so, Ajahn is from London. He was born in London in 1962, and he had a keen interest in Buddhism when in university at the University of Bristol, and then he got ordained in 1985 under the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Cha. And then he practiced for a long time with the meditation master of Venerable Ajahn Anand for a while, and now he's the abbot of Buddha Boniwana Monastery. And today we're going to talk about Against the Tree. So, well, in the description on our Facebook page, we were like, oh, okay, in the society, there's directions everywhere in life. People can choose where they want to go, but which direction do we want to go to? So, tonight Ajahn will share something about this topic. Enjoy. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, it's traditional to begin a talk um, just uh, paying respects to Buddha Dhamma Sangha, so I'll just chant Namo Tassa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Samputasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Samputasa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Samputasa. I don't have a clock, so I don't know how long I should talk. Is there any clock around? I'll guess. I can just guess. <laughs> So anyway, good evening, and uh, thank you again for the uh, warm welcome. We're here, um, the occasion is called the, the Waysack Celebration. And Waysack refers to the full moon in May, um, which is uh, remembered as the day that the Buddha was born, uh, became enlightened, and then entered Parinibbana, passed away uh, all those years ago. So since the life of the Buddha and then the passing of the Buddha, it's been a, an occasion when Buddhists all around the world have uh, remembered their teacher, the Buddha, It's a good occasion for us, whether you're Buddhist or not, or have strong faith, or just uh, just vaguely interested, it doesn't really matter. It's a good chance or time to think about uh, the Buddha, both the historical Buddha, the person, and also um, maybe what the Buddha symbolizes for you. Uh, obviously, the Buddha is still remembered in the world today, that in itself is something very amazing. There's not many individuals from 2,500 years ago who we still talk about, who you might say is a, is a household name. Um, and particularly in this day and age with the um, internet and communications, you know, the name of Buddha is known all over the world. 
Historically, he was uh, born a human being, just like us. So it wasn't a god or a, you know, some kind of supernormal, supernatural being. He's, he's a human being, just like us, born with flesh and blood, just like us. But he was an extraordinary human being in that he eventually um, had the what we call the enlightenment experience. And that refers to you know, the complete ending of all suffering, um, which I think we would all like to experience ourselves. Um, it means more than just the end of, say, you know, the daily stresses and suffering of living in the world, wherever you are, but it means also the end of the cycle of existence, of birth and death, which is very much part of uh, human suffering. Um, so the Buddha had a huge impact on the world. Um, perhaps his own uh, story, how he came to practice and have this enlightenment experience. You know, it began not so much different from us, obviously. You know, the legend is that he was born into a very wealthy ruling family in India um, in those days. Part of India that he lived in was run by, you might call it an oligarchy these, these days, you know, groups of noble families, wealthy, powerful families who ran um, the state. He was, where he was born is now actually part of Nepal, but um, uh, in those days it was all considered India. So he had everything when he was born. He had a loving family. Uh, his father was uh, the head of state, we say the king or the head of the nobleman. And his father particularly had him down to become his heir, the next king. And in tr the tradition in India in those days, they, when a wealthy nobleman's son is born, they get in the astrologers, so they got in eight astrologers. Um, very soon after the birth, and the king wanted to know a prediction, what, were, what, were his, what was his son destined for? And seven of them said, well, he's either going to become a great, powerful monarch or emperor, uh, or else an uh, enlightened spiritual leader. There was just one, Kondanya, uh, who was younger than the rest, and perhaps sharper or had just deeper intuition than the rest and he said no no it's only a one one possibility here this is this baby is going to become a, a great religious leader an enlightened religious leader so that prediction was made um, which produced panic in his parents particularly his dad because his dad was determined that his son should inherit the throne and rule the kingdom um, so he did everything in his power to block or stunt the, the spiritual growth of his son, basically by spoiling him as much as he could, entertaining him, um, giving him the best entertainments, pleasure that money and power could buy in those days in India. So the best food, clothes, sports, ent entertainment and education um, 
and tried to shield him from any form of suffering, whether it's the slightest sort of feelings of irritation or anger or uh, the suffering of deprivation. Obviously he wasn't in poverty so he didn't have to experience that. But even shielding him from just seeing the suffering, the ordinary suffering of human beings. He never saw a sick person when he was young. He never saw an old person. He never attended a funeral or, or he, he never even talked about um, somebody who had died. So he shielded from all the normal kinds of human suffering as much as possible. Because his father guessed that if he encountered any suffering it would perhaps lead him to uh, think about the spiritual life, which is what he didn't want. He wanted his son to become a great leader. Um, so it raises some uh, important points there, like, as I said, our life these days is not that much different. You know, we have lots of pleasure, lots of entertainment, lots of distraction. I don't think anybody here is in abject poverty or starving. Uh, you all look fairly healthy, although some of you may have health issues. Um, we spend our, as much as time as we can as human beings avoiding any kind of physical or mental suffering. Um, but maybe not so successfully, but anyway we do our best. Um, and the Buddha's father was like that. He didn't want his son to have experience any suffering was already had that sense if somebody experiences suffering then they start looking for a way out and that often is what prompts people to go towards the spiritual side of life religious practice meditation and so on uh, which in India in those days was very normal very uh, it was um, a, you might say a religious haven in those days there were many different religions sects religious teachers and many of them very accomplished and greatly respected in the society. So his father tried to protect, protect him from any kind of suffering so he wouldn't think of that side of life. But perhaps the Buddha's um, karma from any previous lifetimes of, of spiritual practice, meditating, helping others, you know, he was driven by a great um, sense of inquiry. He was interested in what is the purpose of life, why are we here, what is the highest happiness, those kind of questions, and why do we have suffering. Um, so he was always inquiring and that, you know, nobody could hold that back, even his own family couldn't hold that back. So during his youth he did um, sneak out of the house, the palace, and go and look at society. Because he'd been so shielded, there was that urge, that interest, curiosity, you might say, to look into society. And that's when he did encounter some of the suffering of human humankind. So sick people, old people, uh, funerals, or corpse at a funeral. And that prompted exactly what his father was trying to prevent the, the, the questions and the interest to go beyond the, the norm, you know, or we might say in relation to the topic of this talk, you know, to go against the stream, uh, the stream being the stream of the world. And the stream of the world was what his father hoped for him, you know, the destiny of being born the son of a king and then taking over the kingdom, you might say, it's the stream of the world.
um, but he had something, some spark or some intuition in his mind that went against that quite naturally. He, he didn't, nobody was guiding him in this. He, he had it quite naturally in himself. Um, so we'd explain that and say, oh, many, many lifetimes of spiritual seeking and practice um, produced that, that in him. Even when he had been a young boy, right, seven years old, you know, as, as happens with royal families, you know, they're always doing ceremonies and leading the society in different ways. So one year uh, there was a ploughing ceremony. A king in those days had the duty at the beginning of the rice growing season to do the ploughing ceremony, to bring a blessing to the land, for the, you know, to have a successful harvest and so on. So the king was doing that ceremony and he brought his family and his young seven-year-old son, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, was there. And again, his intuition was, I don't want to be part of a ceremony. He got bored with the ceremony and he just wandered off and sat under a tree. And at seven years old, he sat down and meditated. Again, unprompted, no one was telling him to do this. He just had that instinct, that idea in his mind. And as he sat under the tree, he became very peaceful. Um, the technical term is he entered a state of meditative absorption, we call jhana. At seven years old, he just quite naturally wanted to sit down quietly and he followed the feeling of his breath, in-breath, out-breath, and entered this state of great peace where he wasn't experiencing any, any physical pain or no discontent, no mental agitation, just very still, calm state of mind. And he said later he never forgot that experience. And, um, even the people around him, you know, when you're the son of a king, you tend to have a lot of people around you, your staff and the entourage of the king, they all notice this and they say, oh, he's really peaceful. And they, they also could sense it. So there was that kind of experience for the Buddha since he was a child and then through his youth both becoming peaceful and then investigating just the truths of life, the, you know, the, the basic truths of life that we all encounter, but not just accepting what he was told all the time or not just following uh, other people. He had this sense of um, wanting to go deeper, find out uh, the real truths and not just accept something just on, on belief or just because he was told, but actually find out from himself through his own inquiries. So the final kind of uh, part of that process during his youth was that having seen people who were sick, people aging, people dying, and then questioning that, you know, does that, am I going to have to experience that? Is this all that human life has to offer, you know, you get old, you get sick and then you die. Or is there something <coughs> beyond that? And then he saw a, a samana. Uh, Buddhist monks didn't exist yet because obviously the Buddha wasn't yet the Buddha. But he saw a religious seeker walking down the road very peacefully in the town. And that was the final kind of piece of the jigsaw for the Buddha and he thought, hmm, this spiritual life that does exist, maybe there is some higher happiness, deeper peace beyond just the normal happiness of human life, wealth and family and pleasant experiences, which we're all seeking normally. 
there, that maybe there's something even beyond that. So that led up to his, him leading, leaving uh, his family, uh, which probably was not an easy thing to do, um, but going out into the forest, leaving all the wealth, the comfort of his life, and spending um, his time in the forest learning meditation particularly. And the Buddha, again, this sense of the determination to find out the truth and really pursue the truth, not just take what was um, sort of laid out for him by the culture around him or his parents or other people, but really wanted, wanting to seek and find out for himself, led him to go and practice study and practice meditation with the leading meditation masters of the time in India. So there were several of them and he went and lived with them and learned again to meditate, attain states of deep calm and peace even to the point where he was more skilled in meditation than his own teachers and they had the, the wisdom to recognize that so they said well you're even better at this than us now you can teach but again his determination to really find the truth of how to pacify the human mind how to go beyond every form of stress and suffering meant that he wouldn't accept the, the methods and the religious training that he got from the teachers of the day. He thought, there's still something more. My mind is not completely peaceful yet. So he left those original teachers and went off on his own. And in India, in those days, one of the strands of thinking in religious practice was that you can... The reason we suffer is because we've accumulated karma we've done good and bad deeds, actions in the past and these bring results back to us. And if we practice in a very ascetic way, a very strict, disciplined way and really push ourselves, and particularly push our bodies, then we can burn off all this karma and we'll have an enlightenment experience. So the Buddha said, okay, that's the, um, the standard, the norm of religious seekers are ones who are very determined to reach the end of suffering. I'm going to follow that. So he, he experimented with that. He went into the forest and practiced great um, asceticism. And again, not doing it by halves, he, you know, he learned to fast for long periods and meditate holding his breath for long periods and, very, and many other ascetic um, styles of practice that were common in those days. He pursued them all, but with great vigor and enthusiasm and really pushed himself, and again, further than anyone else had done at those times. But then he still found that didn't bring the answer. It didn't bring him the, the purity of mind, the wisdom, the understanding that he, he, he was seeking. It brought him many good qualities, and great patience, um, great mental discipline, uh, states of calms, what we call samadhi, but it didn't bring him the, the wisdom that would free his mind from the root causes of suffering. So that led him to give up that way finally after five years, to give up that way and come to um, where he finally became enlightened under the Bodhi tree and having 
practice uh, for a night. We know the Buddha was in, enlightened on this night of Waisak, the full moon in May. Um, he found a way to, to train the human mind not just in asceticism, which he decided was too extreme and ultimately fruitless. Um, he developed what we call the, the middle way, um, the middle way of practice, which had come to, um, which he described as the Eightfold Noble, noble Path, uh, coming to find out the way a human being can not only develop um, great states of calm and samadhi, but also develop insight into why we suffer. Um, they say, you know, the night of his enlightenment, he realized he still had various attachments in his mind. He sat under the Bodhi tree and he realized I'm still attached to my He had a wife, he had a son, he had parents, he had family. Even though he could um, meditate and enter deep states of calm and they say escape all the worries, the normal attachments that bother our mind and the, the desires, the attachments temporarily. He hadn't yet fully freed his mind from them and he could see you know, he still has a a thought or an attachment or a concern for his wife, for his son. We, when I say an attachment, I mean a, a desire, an attachment that causes mental agitation coming from, uh, you might say, from a lack of understanding or delusion. Or you might say a blind attachment. This is what he was investigating. He said, why do I still suffer missing things that I haven't got, people? Because uh, obviously when you're separated from the people you love, you feel some stress, some pain, some unhappiness. Um, why do I still attach to this body? And we have our worries about our health and our body. We have fear, fear of illness, fear of death. This is what he was investigating under the Bodhi tree. And through his efforts on that night, he finally came to the conclusion the cause of all our suffering as human beings is um, a quality we call craving, dunha uh, craving, which you might um, translate as, as negative desire or harmful desire uh, that human beings get caught into all the time every day of our life, all the time, if we're not very aware, we tend to follow the ways of craving. Um, briefly, uh, he dis di um, distinguished three types of craving that we follow. It's called Gama Dhanha, or craving for sensuality, so that's what we can see, we hear, we taste, we touch with our five senses. We're always seeking your pleasurable experiences. It's just our default habit of mind. Uh, and then running away or trying to get rid of unpleasant experiences, which is another of these three types of craving, Vipavadana. And then just the deeper craving, the deep craving for our existence, for life, our identity with who we are, what we want, our ambitions, and all of that. These three types of craving are constantly um, coming up in the human experience and if they're unknown, unaddressed, then they cause us mental suffering all the time. 
So it could be very small kinds of craving. I just, listen, I want some kind of nice food or something to buy something or to hear some music or something. Or it could be a much deeper kind of craving, and the craving just for life itself, if your life is threatened, or a craving for another person, through love, through um, attachment to another person. There's many kinds of craving, but he identified this is what our real, the real source of our trouble is as human beings. And he kept investigating that, and because he's the Buddha, I guess his insight, his wisdom faculty, and his determination was, was very strong, so he was able to develop enough awareness and understanding to actually fully understand craving as the source of, of suffering and then abandon it all in one night, uh, which is quite amazing in itself. Um, and this is what led to the enlightenment experience and the Buddha abandoned all craving, all clinging from his mind. So we say purified his mind on that night of his enlightenment. And then spend the rest of his life teaching people how to do this. Um, the first thing he reflected on after his enlightenment was, oh, this is not easy to do. Uh, he thought it was so difficult, maybe other people won't be able to practice it. But then out of compassion and the sort of innate kindness, compassion he had in his heart, he recognized, well, there are some, at least some people who will be able to understand this. So he started teaching. So basically, um, he was teaching what he called, I teach about suffering, what it is, how to comprehend it, and then the end of suffering, how to end suffering. In a nutshell, that's what Buddhism is. It's a way for human beings to understand the nature of suffering, its cause, and then what you have to do about it, the remedy, how to end suffering. And he spent the rest of his life teaching that. And we know this because we still have the Buddhist texts, the, uh, the, the Tripitaka that uh, we've inherited from previous generations. And perhaps even more importantly, we're fortunate that there's been a whole tradition of uh, monks, nuns, men and women who have practiced this since the time of the Buddha. And you might say have proven what the Buddha was teaching is true, is correct. Is that whenever you develop enough awareness and understanding of your own mind to recognize craving as a source of suffering and then abandon it, you experience peace. You abandon it once, you experience some peace once maybe. If you completely abandon it, you experience complete peace. There's many people who have practiced this and found that works and that's what's continued this tradition, what we call Buddhism these days. Um, it's, you know, it's a living tradition of people who have practiced what the Buddha taught and found it works. They've proven it works and then they hand on sort of their own experience. They teach others right down to this day. So that's what we're celebrating or remembering at Waisak is not only the Buddha's great efforts um, in the practice and his enlightenment, uh, but also you know, the value of what, what he taught, uh, what we call the path, uh, the way of practice, because it's a way that human beings, it's a vehicle or it's a way that human beings can improve themselves. And 
and, and free themselves from suffering, which is probably what we're all interested in one way or another. Um, so maybe this is what Buddhism offers to the world. Um, as I said just now, it's a living tradition. Uh, fortunately, there have been many people who have practiced and are still, there are still many pract practitioners in the world who have found uh, that these teachings have helped them, benefited them. And I'm lucky enough to live with one, Venerable <coughs> Lumpo Cha, who was my teacher. Uh, as you heard earlier, I was born in the UK, but I haven't lived there for many years now. Uh, I went to study and practice um, in Thailand, and I was ordained at Lumpo Cha's monastery uh, many years ago. And he was a, a very good example of somebody who dedicated his life to the practice of what the Buddha taught. And uh, he was somebody who probably would very much say, you know, you when you're practicing what the Buddha taught, you do have to learn to go against the stream. Um, this, quality, uh, this term, dunha, or craving, that the Buddha uses, the cause of suffering, he said, there's no river as long as craving in the world. So you think of the longest rivers in this world, craving is even longer. It's, it's a quality that just breeds more of itself. You, know, you give in to craving once it gets stronger, it reinforces itself as a quality. <clears throat> so when you're practicing the Buddhist path and investigating this, you're turning your attention back on your own mind all the time. You're, you have to learn to go against craving. First of all, recognize it and then go against it. So this is where you get the, this phrase that going against the stream. <clears throat> and Ajahn Chah, my teacher, was somebody who very much learned how to do that very well. Um, and then not only that, but having understood his own mind very well, came back to teach others how to do it as well. Um, already just the thought going against the stream, you know, as an idea, doesn't sound too attractive because you know, it already makes you think, mm, I'm going to have to <laughs> do something hard, give something up that I like, or whatever. And true, there may be that part of it as well. It's also um, just a reflection on the, the nature of our lives, is that you know, it's not always good to follow the stream of our desires, our negative desires, the ones that cause suffering. Um, but sometimes to give them up, you have to learn uh, to see the big picture, the long-term picture of what you're doing. When you practice, say you come to practice meditation, for example, you know, a lot of people are a little bit wary or scared to practice meditation because immediately they think, well, we've got to sit down, cross-legged, sit still, I've got my mind, my mind is not very peaceful, I'm thinking hundreds of thoughts. You know, you, you're already th a little bit afraid of going against the stream when you start to train or practice with yourself, because you know it means you've got to work. Like a very common thing um, people say when you teach meditation is they say, oh, my life is already so busy, I've got so many activities and now you want me to meditate every day. It's like one more thing that I've got to do. <laughs> Uh, this is, but this is you know, the, the reality of it, isn't it? If you really want to go beyond your suffering, you have to learn how to arouse some energy, some inspiration, and to discipline yourself to a certain extent. 
so one of the first hurdles about following the Buddhist path is just getting over that um, fear or concern that you know what what's it what does it mean what am I going to have to give up what am I going to have to do <laughs> the doubts uh, they they tend to come up whenever you're you're doing something you could say it's just doing something good but it, it requires effort um, so when we talk about going against the stream you have to really understand what the purpose of this phrase is and, and the, the flavor of this practice is. It's, it's, it may be true that sometime in the short term when going against the stream means, means um, doing something that you part of your mind doesn't really want to do or something that you maybe sense is good but you also have reservations or maybe just you just have so many doubts you can't see why, what the purpose is at all. You really have to sit down and think it through. And this is where meeting teachers, people who've practiced already and found the benefit, can help because they can reassure you or at least explain to you how it works following the Buddhist path. And yes, sometimes you have to go against the stream in the beginning, particularly. Um, but it's worth it in the long run. Maybe some short-term uh, difficulties as you, you are learning to train yourself, become more aware of your own mind, your own life. But in the long run, you're freeing yourself from the effects of, of craving, which is the source of suffering. Another way the Buddha talked about craving is like it's a slave driver. You know, it's these voices in our head, our desires, habits of mind that come up um, that often lead us into more attachment and more suffering and if we're honest often when we sit down and look at our, our mind we often very um, feel powerless feel like a victim because it's such a powerful um, feeling or powerful um, driving force in the way we're thinking this is why we, we come to practice meditation. It's because you're, you're learning to sit down and look at your mind very directly. And in the beginning it can be quite overwhelming. You know, many people say, oh, when I learn, learn meditation, you know, my mind is all over the place. It's so difficult. And very quickly maybe give up or feel uh, the whole thing is too difficult. Um, so you have to have a sense of this is a, maybe a long-term activity, a, a path of gradual progress, something that you have to learn to be patient with, learn to keep doing. Um, very few people get quick results, not like you know, not like the Buddha just sitting down seven years old and already in the mind becoming very peaceful. You know, very few people are like that. Most of us, it's. To be honest, it's a hard slog. It's something you have to learn and keep learning over a long, long time. Um, but don't let that put you off because the goal is that you're freeing your mind from the effects of craving. You're freeing your mind from the causes of suffering. But going against the stream is like that. You know, it takes effort. It's like, you know, say, swimming up, up river. If you ever go swimming in a river or swimming in the sea when there's a strong current, you know, it's hard work. But you can do it if you use some effort and, some, and you're willing to try. 
So just this term going against the stream at first can be off-putting, but it's also helping us at least to see what we have to do. And you know, the stream of craving is so ingrained in us from birth. You know, we unfortunately, you know, most people are not being uh, encouraged to be mindful and aware of their own minds very much as, as from from the time they're little kids. We tend to do the opposite. We tend to follow the stream of craving. And attachments. Uh, and this is why, as we become adult, adults, we often find we have so much suffering, and we wonder where it all came from. So, one of the biggest parts of Buddhist practice that the Buddha encourages is to develop more self-awareness, uh, more this ability to turn around and look at our mind and see, well, where is the cause of my stress, my suffering? Where does it come from? Which is why meditation become has been. And is a big part of Buddhist practice and why these days maybe it's becoming more fashionable, more uh, useful in society as a way to deal with um, say some of the modern problems, some of the, the issues we have living in the world. Because I think nowadays people are aware that even though materially we're more successful, more wealthy as human beings and society is more developed, um, but mentally we still have lots and lots of stress and suffering in our lives and so the practice of particularly mindfulness and different meditation techniques has become more popular. Um, but whatever technique you're using, you, know, you have to be willing to sit down, come back and have a look at yourself, look at your mind and that in itself is going against the stream because from, from day one in this world, our tendency is always to go out to the world. You know, the way the human mind, the untrained human mind works is we're always going out to the world looking for things, sound, sight, sounds, taste, smell, touch. That's our habit and if, if we've never realized how this process is working, our mind is just caught up in it all the time. So from the time we're kids, we're always looking for the next toy, the next pleasurable experience, the next nice thing to eat, the next person, the next thing, the next this, the next that. And then as we grow older those um, desires become more complex. So we have ambitions and sense of personal identity and all the things we identify with as that we see as will bring us happiness and so on. The craving is um, kind of doing its thing all the time in our life. So to come and sit down and start investigating that is quite a quite a, a challenge. But if we're willing to uh, give it some time and we have some sense that what the Buddha was talking about did did make sense, then maybe it's it's worthwhile taking the time maybe to commit to practicing some meditation. Uh, as a way to understand yourself better. Um, just like the Buddha, when he was a child, he, he started practicing breathing meditation. You know, that's a very good way to start meditation if you've never done it before, or if you've done it before, or to do more of it. Um, you'll see, just as we know, when you start practicing meditation, um, the biggest challenge Sometimes it's the physical challenge of your body, maybe your body has some pain and discomfort, but normally it's the mind, isn't it, is the biggest challenge. 
the, the mind that is not peaceful, the mind that is not particularly uh, happy or content in itself. That's what we expose straight away because the mind is usually running all over the place when you practice meditation. This is where Buddhism is helping us to understand ourselves better, to learn to develop more awareness. So we use a meditation object, um, maybe the breath, to learn to develop more, more awareness, directing the mind to a very simple object. And when you practice um, what we call mindfulness of breathing, you, the breath is a very simple sensation that there all the time in our body but most of the time we're not aware of it. So take some effort, some commitment to start putting attention on the breath as a, as a meditation practice. You might begin just practicing for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, learning to put attention on the feeling of the in and out breath at the tip of your nostrils, just as a way to improve um, this quality of mental awareness, alertness that comes as you, as you practice this. And so it's a technique uh, the Buddha's encouraged us to develop, to train the mind in becoming more aware of itself. And to do that you have to go against the stream, because if you put your awareness on your breath, then you'll have 101 thoughts come up straight away, as most of you have tried it will know. You start paying attention to your breath, but two seconds later you're thinking about your work, your family life, where you want to go, what happened, either thinking about past events, thinking about future plans, you know, straight in the way you're seeing the problem that the mind is not still, it's not under your control, it's moving around under the influence of what we call craving or dhamma. But that in itself is almost like a little victory. At least you're becoming more aware of what the problem is, that you only have maybe half control of your mind. You know, normally we don't think like this, do we? Normally we think, I'm in control, I know who I am, I know where I'm going, what I want to do. But as soon as you meditate, that changes, doesn't it? You realize, hmm, I'm not so fully in control of my mind. All these thoughts are coming up. And we experience what we call mental proliferation, just that endless thinking that at first is very difficult to tame or to control. But as I said, it's like the first victory is just recognizing what the problem is. And secondly, it's about putting effort into training in this, this technique of uh, developing mind, full mindfulness, full, full awareness of the breath. And it's nothing that so special or difficult. We all have the breath here. Everyone's breathing. It's just normally we're not aware of it. So taking up this simple sensation and directing your mind to follow the breath can actually reveal everything that uh, the Buddha was talking about and everything you need to free your mind from suffering and the causes of suffering. As we practice mindfulness of breathing, you learn to deal with the mind that is very discontent, agitated, sometimes it's sleepy, sometimes it's worried, sometimes angry. We have all the different moods and experiences that we have as human beings. You're learning to look at them now, face up to them, and look more closely at where they're coming from and what their nature is. And as you practice mindfulness of breathing, you can't help but become aware of certain basic truths. 
relaxes. Even if you're just trying to put your attention on the breath, trying to focus, concentrate on the breath for 10 minutes. Perhaps the first most valuable understanding you'll gain is that mm, I do have a lot of thoughts shooting up all over the place, taking me here and there, daydreaming, whatever. But there's one thing you can see that they all have in common is that they're all temporary. We say impermanent, anicca is the Buddha's word. Every thought you have is a temporary mental state. It arises, it's there for a while and it passes away. You may have another thought and another thought and it may be related to the first thought. You may have a train of thought, a whole story going on in your mind. But the more you practice focusing your attention on the breath, the more you're also aware of how your mind is constantly experiencing mental states that come and go. Some of them pleasant, some of them unpleasant. But they all have this one property or quality in common is that they are all temporary. They come and they go. So we experience temporary happiness, sure, but then it goes. Pleasant thoughts, pleasant feelings. Then we sometimes have the more negative, unpleasant feelings, unpleasant thoughts. They come and they go. But gradually you're becoming more aware of the nature of your own mind is that your mental activity, the feelings, the emotions, the thoughts, they have this thing in common in that they're all temporary, they're all changing, they're transient. Maybe that in itself is enough for a, you know, a very sharp, wise person to become enlightened. If they could really see that all the time, then they wouldn't be grasping so strongly at every thought, every feeling, every emotion. Even if you're not seeing that all the time, if you only see it once already, it's a great relief, especially with the more stressful negative thoughts we have as human beings. If you can turn to your breath, say, when you are feeling very stressed, very worried, or angry, you turn to the breath and you start to look back at that thought in a more detached way, rather than just running with it, believing it, following it. You turn to the breath and then you see the thought more as a passing mental experience, you know, like a cloud in the sky just coming and going. If you can see that, you know, it gives you a great sense of relief at that moment. Oh, this will pass. If you've seen a particular emotional state that was really causing you stress before arise and pass away, well, if it comes up again but you turn to develop more self-awareness at that moment, you can say, hmm, I've seen this arise and pass away before, now I can watch and see it pass away again. I'll just watch rather than believe it and become it. So you can use that with worry, or anger, or greed, or jealousy, all the different kinds of mental states we have. Or in the more subtle way, you, know, you may be experiencing a very pleasant mind state. You may be very happy, things are going well in your life, or you have a very kind thought, a good thought. But even that, you're also aware it's a temporary experience of mind. It comes and goes. This is a very simple, what we call insight, but it's something that is very liberating to us as human beings when we start to turn our awareness, look back at our own mind and see the nature of our mental activity is transient, it's changing all the time. It gives us a great sense of relief, particularly from the stress, but it also gives us an understanding that we can take with us all the time. 
we can become more and more aware of the changing nature of our, our mental activity, our mental world. And that will start to give us a new perspective on the physical and external world, which most of the time we're caught up with. You know, most of the time, if we're honest, we're not looking at ourselves very much. We're out there, going through our eyes, our ears, our taste buds, our touch, and always thinking about the world around us. You know, normally that's what we're doing. So this Monash Center you know, is a great center of learning and research, but generally it's human beings researching external things turning different aspects of science, or the economy, or, uh, the environment, or whatever, medicine, whatever, you know, it's human beings looking out, finding out about the world, the material world, but when you're practicing mindfulness following what the Buddha taught, you're also seeing what is as important or even more important as your own mental world, what's going on inside. So you're changing the direction of your attention, not always letting your mind go out, but you're also turning to look what's going on on the inside. And it gives us this awareness of the, of the temporary, transient nature of the world. You know, if you're becoming more aware through this breathing meditation, then you might start becoming more aware physically how your body is always changing. We're aging and we get hungry and then we get eat food and we feel full and then we feel hungry again and we feel energetic and then we feel tired we feel hot we feel cold so physically we become more aware of ourselves our own bodies the more we practice this mentally we are aware more of the, the, the transient landscape of the mind how feelings come and go pleasure displeasure pleasure pain happiness sadness becoming more aware of our own changing mental landscape. So our whole view of the world starts to change a bit. You know, you, people often say, oh, before I meditated, I used to take everything so seriously. <laughs> and I had so many you know, fixed views and beliefs about things. As soon as I start meditating, I realize, hmm, a lot of those views are maybe more flexible or maybe not so important, or some of the things that seem so important I now realize were not so important. It's a change of view takes place the more you meditate. Uh, simply opening up to the truth of the world is that it's a very impermanent, changeable place. The very first time the Buddha taught, um, after his enlightenment, it was about two months after his enlightenment, he went to see his old students who had previously been uh, practicing with him, five meditators. One of them was Kondanya, that first um, astrologer who predicted he would become a Buddha, an enlightened Buddha. He went to see them and he gave his first sermon, you might know it's called the Dhamma Chaka Kawatana Sutta, it's the wheel turning where the Buddha starts explaining the truth about suffering and how to end it and how human beings can practice to end suffering. And Interesting, at the end of that um, teaching he gave, Venerable Kondanya became the first enlightened disciple of the Buddha. Um, so that's a very important moment say, in, the, in the progress of, of Buddhist practice after the Buddha's enlightenment. And the reflection and uh, Kondanya had that was his enlightenment moment was that all things that are of the nature are to arise, 
are of the nature to cease, which is this insight, everything is impermanent, everything that arises must cease, everything subject to arising is subject to ceasing. So that's physical phenomena, whatever material things we have in this world, they're in constant states of change, they arise, they cease, they change, and mental phenomena, our thoughts, feelings, memories, experiences, and they're changing. We call them conditions, physical conditions, mental conditions, because they're changing. That was the insight I had, and it's a very ordinary kind of thing to say, well, everything is impermanent, everything arises and ceases. You know. Nowadays, when you, you Google, you're looking for wise Buddhist reflections and sayings, or buying some book that will give you some deep insight, profound insight, you're always looking for some very special insight or saying that will be more wise and more profound than you've ever heard or read before. But this very first insight that an enlightened person had, a student of the Buddha, was actually that everything is impermanent. And it's really simple, very obvious kind of thing, a point. So obvious that we overlook it all the time. But it's worth taking you know, time to think about it. It's this was a liberating insight for a human being. Everything is impermanent, all that arises ceases. When you meditate, you start to understand this simple fact, you know, every thought you have does arise and pass away. Your human body is constantly changing, it's arising ceasing, and one day you'll get old, sick and die. One day, you know, this beautiful building that they built here at Monash, one day it will be pulled down, maybe not in our lifetime, but it is temporary. You start looking at the world slightly differently once you have this kind of uh, perception or insight arise. It may not yet be fully liberating, but it helps you to understand things a little better. So say some days you have a great sense of suffering in your mind, you're very upset about something. If you can just bring your attention back to the present moment, maybe follow the breath, and just ask yourself, you know, how long will this feeling last? Maybe you have to answer yourself, okay, it's bad, this is bad, but it will change. You have some great mistake in your life or some great calamity, some trauma, some pain comes up. Well, ask yourself, how long will this last? It will change. How long, how quick will it change? Sometimes the greatest sufferings pass very quickly, they're just momentary. Sometimes they're reoccurring, but the more you focus on change, the more it becomes, you become aware of it in your life. And it's liberating in a sense, it helps you to bring your mind to see the truth. And this is what undermines craving, which the Buddha said is the cause of our suffering. And craving in the end is just a craving, like we know, it's just a desire. It comes up, it passes away. If you can see that, it means you don't have to follow it, you don't have to believe it or be enslaved by it. As I was mentioning earlier, Ajahn Chah, our teacher, he was very good at getting people to see craving as impermanent, uh, but in a, a way you know, where you can actually gain some understanding. So he would use very ordinary experiences in life. So um, you know, just something very simple like how when you're a monk, you don't have a lot, you don't have many possessions, you only eat one meal a day, sometimes you get a drink, maybe one, one drink a day. In his monastery, maybe not even one drink a day. 
other than water. You can have water any time. Say a hot drink, sweet drink, soft drink would be like a rare treat. So living as a monk in those days, you know, your craving might center on very simple things like food, drink, <laughs> things like that, because there wasn't much else to distract you. So Ajahn Chah was very good at using those situations. So I, you, know, you're, you're, you become a Buddhist monk or now you're studying in craving, how to see craving, understand it as a temporary experience of mind that you know, can be let go of. But how do you do that in practice? So like Ajahn Chah would, might use a situation like say somebody offered some coffee. And nowadays you know, everybody drinks coffee, almost like water. Drink coffee all the time. In those days, in the monastery, coffee was a rarity. So sometimes people would offer coffee. Uh, they make a nice pot of coffee. There was so little coffee in those days. They didn't make give everyone an individual cup. They made a big pot, and then you had your cup, and you might get half a cup or a full cup. They poured out. Maybe there'd be 30, 40, 50 monks having to share one pot of coffee. So you didn't get much. Maybe somebody came, brought some coffee, offered it to Ajahn Chah and he might just have it put down in front of him and then ignore it, act as though it wasn't there. Was teaching maybe, there are other activities going on, but somebody, particularly a young monk, new monk to the practice, you know, as soon as the smell of coffee comes, it's coffee. Craving is prompted then, isn't it? You know, craving is prompted by our senses. You see things, you hear things, you taste, you smell. So you smell the coffee and you look. So you get the seeing of oh, coffee pot. But nothing else is happening. <laughs> Other than your own craving in your mind is saying, when is the coffee coming down the line? When will it be given out? Imagine Chai is a master in knowing, oh, I mean, Coffee. Everyone will have, or most monks would have craving for that. They want that. So let's see, let's learn, let's experiment and learn about craving for a while. So you might say, just ignore it for an hour or two. Just leave the pot there. Act as if it didn't exist. It wasn't there. So all these other people around, all the monks, junior monks, maybe they're meditating or listening to a talk. You know, the ones who are really full of craving will really be looking and wondering when is the coffee coming and thinking. And you see how craving, it breeds more cravings. And you have craving for coffee, but it's um, frustrated because the teacher's not letting the coffee come out, come out, be served. So it may be craving, further away, it's desire, it's excitement, enthusiasm, oh, I want that coffee, oh good, we're going to get some coffee, I'm so excited, so happy, this is the best day of my life. But then, it's not coming, so very quickly we go to disappointment. If you, your, your craving is frustrated, usually it turns up into another kind of craving, the craving to get rid of the disappointment, you're not getting the thing you want. So maybe you become very frustrated, irritated, annoyed, angry. But all the while the coffee is just sitting there. And Ajahn Chah is just ignoring the whole situation. It's not he's ignoring it, but he's just using it as a way of teaching. So the meditator has to deal with their own um, craving. You might say go against the stream. And your craving says, I want coffee now. The stream of the mind is doing that, but then the situation doesn't allow, doesn't support it, because it would be a, a very rude, disrespectful thing to just go up and serve yourself. You have to wait until it, it's served to you. So as a monk, it's like that in the monk's life. 
So you're waiting and you're, all you can do is deal with your craving. It's a form of meditation, as you might call it, the coffee craving meditation. You're sitting there, when's he going to send it down? I'm suffering. Yeah, you, both you're seeing your craving, but you're also seeing the suffering of the craving, the agitation, the frustration. So if you're successful at that moment, you might think, oh, it doesn't matter. If you don't drink your coffee, it doesn't matter. You don't get your coffee, it's not the end of the world. You won't die. It's just a drink anyway, who needs it? <laughs> you find some way to release your mind from being enslaved to that craving at that moment. Then maybe you have some real peace arises. Oh, it doesn't matter, you just forget about the coffee and carry on meditating or doing whatever activity you're doing. Often it was at that moment that Ajahn Chah might say, oh, we've got some coffee, let's have some coffee. <laughs> it's done his work of teaching you to see craving, deal with your craving. So, you know, the Buddhist path is sort of using these situations, using the stress, the suffering of life as a learning experience rather than just being a victim of it and getting caught into it. And you think about it, you don't actually need a teacher to do this for you every day. Maybe you can get coffee anytime you want, but there'll be something else that you want you're not able to get. When am I going to get my degree? <laughs> when am I going to get my the exam result I want? When, I'm gonna, when am I going to get the job I want? When are my friends going to recognize me and you know, speak nicely to me? <laughs> when am I going to get this, get that? Or when am I going to get rid of the things I don't like from my life? You know, craving is affecting us all the time in our everyday. Already today you would have had many moments of craving. But what the Buddha was encouraging us to do, or Ajahn Chah was encouraging us to use those as a learning experience. Don't just give in to it and suffer with it. To do that you have to be able to look back at your mind, become more aware, and see craving for what it is. And what is it? It's just an impermanent state of mind. It's just, usually it's just a thought, maybe there'll be a strong feeling with it. A thought of uh, desire, wanting, greed, maybe sort of um, aversion, ill will, could be directed to an object, a person, an experience. But one thing you can be sure of is that craving arises and it passes away. And the more you see that, the less afraid of it and the less enslaved you are to it. You learn to be more aware of yourself, you, you're freeing your mind from craving. And it doesn't mean to say you stop functioning in the world and you stop studying or you stop working or you stop you know, loving your family or living in the world. What it means is you now understand the nature of craving so it doesn't have to cause suffering in your mind. So you work without craving. You know, the more you understand this, the less craving you have as you work, as you, um, as you play, as you do whatever you do in your life, you're recognizing craving is the source of your problem rather than out there, you know, some person or some situation. So this is just a simple example, you know, working with coffee, but it could be a hundred and one other things. You're learning to see how, if we're not very mindful, not very aware, craving dominates our life, dominates our thinking, dominates the way we, we act as human beings, and it always leads to suffering. A lot of suffering sometimes, just minor irritations, discontent sometimes, but always suffering. So anytime you manage to recognize craving as craving, abandon it. It's a little victory for you. That's a little taste of what the Buddha was teaching, a little taste of Nibbana, you might say. 
It doesn't even mean you have to go without coffee for the rest of your life. You might still be able to have coffee, but it's the craving you're looking at. And so sometimes it's helpful to, you know, physically, mentally go against the streams. Or maybe yeah, sometimes you decide, I'm not going to have my coffee today. I'm not going to uh, indulge my particular craving today, whatever it may be. You know, say you're addicted to games. Okay, I'm going to have a game-free night. I'm going to turn my phone off. So it's the other kind of craving, the more the irritation, the aversion type, well, I'm not going to follow my aversion today, I'm not going to tell that person what I think of them, uh, I'm not going to get angry with them, I'm just going to watch my craving rather than follow it. You, know, you can devise your own method of practice in different situations once you understand what you have to do to free your mind from this. So I've talked a little bit uh, for a while now about um, what the Buddha practiced and taught and um, giving you maybe some examples, some guide guidelines. Um, maybe I'll end the talk here and um, wish you all well in your practice. But before we completely finish, we've got time if you want to ask any questions, uh, feel free. skillful or wholesome desires in life that uh, we can follow and develop and then the unwholesome ones which are craving. So a big part of practice is learning to identify which is which. So you know, say you, um, you want to meditate, just the wish to meditate, that inspiration, that intention you would say is a good desire because you maybe want to meditate to free your mind from some stress, suffering, that's a good thing. But as you start meditating, your mind might quickly jump to the thought, when am I going to be peaceful? <laughs> which is a more negative type of, which is craving, a negative type of desire. And so you're learning to become more aware of your intentions and the things motivating you. And you'll see your mind jumps all the time. You know, one moment there's a very skillful desire, next moment something else has taken over. Um, so of course we need desire, skillful desire in life to do anything, you know, to study, to work, to, to help somebody, to meditate, to do anything good in this life. But you also have to watch out for how subtly other kinds of more negative desire or craving will slip in. So even as a meditator, you, know, you start thinking all about the results, when am I going to get peace, when am I going to... I've been meditating for so long now, you know, when am I actually going to see some results for this? So you might get frustrated or disappointed or maybe even I can meditate very well better than them <laughs> you know, different, you know, so many different kinds of negative craving that come in but negative craving always leads to desire and focus on 
getting something, you know, we want a result, we want something, uh, you know, it's some form of greed, or else when we're not getting what we want, the disappointment, the frustration. Skillful desires lead more on to skillful effort, actually putting effort into the causes that will bring the results, so you, you, know, you still obviously have a one eye on the results that you want, but you're looking more at the causes. So they give, you know, comparisons, say like, you know, when you um, plant a tree, you, if you're using skillful desire, you're thinking, oh, okay, I want a tree, I want this apple tree to grow up so I can have apples, but what's my job? My job is to dig the hole, plant the tree, water it, fertilize it, protect it from pests, and I'll leave it to grow by itself, and when the time is right, I'll get an apple tree. That would be like planting a tree with skillful desire. If you're planting a tree with craving, it's more, I want apples, I want them now. When is my tree going to grow? You, know, you focus just on that. And you may neglect things that you have to do, or you may your desire becomes so strong and you keep looking and getting frustrated and poking the tree and getting angry with the tree. Right? You're doing the same thing but with an unskillful state of mind. So you're learning how to distinguish between skillful desire and unskillful desire, between craving, uh, which leads to suffering, or skillful desire, which always leads to effort, which will lead to the end of suffering. There's a difference there. You notice, you know, what is the result? Say you're doing a, I don't know if you're a student, but say you're, you're doing a, an assignment or something, you're writing or some assignment you've got to do, you know, if you're doing it skillfully, you're always coming back to what do I have to do to, for this assignment to be successful. You get the information, put it together, produce the report, or write the essay, whatever. You're looking more at the skillful causes. As far as the result, you just have to trust if you do the skillful causes, well, there'll be some good result coming from that. Where does the stress come is when you give into the craving is, I've got to do this report, you know, when's it going to be finished, oh, how am I going to get it done, will I get the mark that I need, oh no, you know, you, there's a difference there. So you're learning to recognise that and obviously let go of the craving and then you have a much stress-free, more stress-free assignment or whatever you're doing. And you'll notice when um, craving takes over the mind, the sense of self, the ego becomes big, becomes prominent in your experience. So. Even though you're doing that job of work, you know, there's a sense of me doing this, what am I going to get from it, who am I, what are other people going to think, all that kind of thinking. Whereas when you're developing more skillful desires, and particularly just the awareness of what do I need to do to do this job of work well, what's required, how can I be successful, you're looking more at those skillful causes, the sense of self starts to dissolve away. You're not worried about what other people think and do. You're not thinking about the result at the end so much. You know, you obviously you do want the result, but you're looking more at what do I need to do right now to get success in this thing. So the sense of self tends to fade away. And you'll notice that if you're becoming, you know, particularly meditators, they notice this. When your, your mindfulness is strong and clear, the sense of self seems to disappear and you're much happier. You can do that assignment, it's like time goes quickly and it's like, oh, it was fine, I just lost myself in my work, it was great. When the craving takes over, you know, time is important and 
every moment it seems like a, a, a long time and you know what other people think and all the worries start to come all the expectations I want this if I can get this then I'll get that later and the experience is totally different then you start to recognize the skillful desire and the unskillful desire Starts when we're kids. You know, when you're kids, you get in the car with your parents going somewhere, and you're always sitting on the back seat saying, "Are we there yet?" <laughs> Craving is like that. You know, are we there yet? When are we going to get there? <laughs> okay. Uh, first of all, thank you for the. Okay. Okay, first of all, thank you for the talk. It was uh, very interesting. And um, so, um, one part of the point is this to avoid suffering, right? To, yeah, to, yeah, to avoid suffering. So, why, why suffering is a problem in the first place? Some people may say that, uh, okay, if you suffer, you can grow. It's part of your experience also, suffering, so why we should avoid that? Uh, well, I agree. Uh, the, Buddha, the Buddhist way, you might say, is to learn from suffering, comprehend it, understand it, but obviously with the goal of to be free from suffering. I mean, you don't want to suffer endlessly in life, do you? But when suffering comes up, the different experiences of suffering we have, it's like to learn from them rather than uh, escape from them. Because you'll notice in life, what we tend to do is try and avoid suffering as much as possible, but not, not with uh, full awareness and comprehension of it. It's like you're always trying to get away from it um, through distraction or through control. You know, we try to control the environment and minimize the suffering. We try to control our lives so that you know, don't have to have any problems. And to a certain extent, that's correct, uh, true. But they'll all, inevitably there will be some suffering and it's about attitude. When suffering comes, big or small, how do we deal with it? What's the attitude? And the Buddha was encouraging us to stop and learn from it first before you avoid it, get rid of it. You know, what is the root cause of this suffering? You know, so like, what's an example? Say you're angry with somebody, you know, if you're angry with somebody, what's your natural habit or reaction will probably just get rid of them, get away from them yourself, move away from them or get them rid of them, get out of your life at that point. Uh, which is, you know, sometimes that is the correct thing to do. But at the same time, you also maybe look deeper and say, well, why am I angry with this person? And instead of just looking at that person or blaming them or attributing them to be the cause of your suffering, you're looking back and saying, hmm, really what is happening here? If I'm angry with someone, where is the anger? It's in here. Whatever they've said or done, that's, that's part of the story, but there's also my own reaction, my own feeling, my own thought, my own um, mental state at that time. If you just get rid of the person or the situation to get rid of that suffering, you'll never maybe go deeper and say, well, where is the actual real, real problem? The real problem maybe is attaching to something inside, attaching to that feeling, that way of thinking. 
especially when often it's a situation you can't control and you can't control other people very well. Um, there'll always be people around to annoy us. <laughs> but can I go more to my feeling and the way I'm thinking and deal with that rather than just try and sort them out on the outside? You know, what we tend to do is go and argue with them or tell them off or try and control them in some way so I don't have to feel angry. But can I do it the other way around? Look at my anger and say, can I control that more? Can I be more aware of that as a feeling, as a way of thinking? And let that go. Maybe that's more effective because then, you know, if you learn how to control your anger from the inside more, then when that other, you know, the inevitable situation arises that triggers anger, you don't have to worry so much about it or try to control it or get so frustrated with it, you're more looking at yourself, what can I do here? And that's a skill that you can get better at, turning into your own mind more. But why, why, like, okay, does Buddhism say why it is bad? Because, okay, I feel, okay, we are human, so we, we know that it's bad, but there is a reason for that? Or? Yeah, I mean, well, with anger, do you like being angry? No one, but I know, but there is a reason? Maybe a reason, but it would be nice if we didn't have to feel anger, wouldn't it? I think most people would agree. Mm. doesn't mean to say you don't do anything in the world and you don't address problems and, and interact with the world, but if you could do that without feeling angry, you'd be happier. Because anger in its nature is suffering. Perhaps you haven't seen that. I mean, sometimes we get angry, we don't even realize it's suffering. Because we're believing in it as, a, as who we are, we identify with it, and the reasons, the causes, we think it's correct, I should be angry because this has happened, so I should feel anger. But if you stop and look at it as an experience, you might say, mm, but I'm suffering when I'm angry. <clears throat> and that's your, the starting point for looking, how, how can you address it? internally, maybe outside, there may or may not be something you can do, but internally you can maybe change your way of thinking at that moment. One thing I mentioned, a craving, and anger would be a kind of craving, it feeds itself, it reinforces itself, so you know, when we're young often we only get angry occasionally, it depends on the person, but you know, it's occasional, so you don't, maybe don't feel the pressure of it, but it reinforces itself as a habit, a mental habit. So then, say you're getting angry once, twice, three times, as you get older, maybe it gets worse. It's more ingrained habit, more frequent, more intense. So by the time you're, you're, you're middle-aged, old-aged, there's a lot of anger. And it hasn't been addressed, so it's become much more a part of your personality. So if we can address it early and, and start looking at addressing it, internally rather than just trying to fix the world outside all the time. It might do ourselves a lot of good, not just for now, but for the future as well. That's just one example, is it? There's many ways we suffer. Someone was telling me a story today about um, a student 
from Thailand who went to study in America and he's a Buddhist and meditator so he somebody who's always trying to incorporate Buddhist themes and meditation into his daily life um, I can't remember which university he was in somewhere on the East Coast but one day he was coming out of the university just out onto the street and he was crossing the road and this guy rushed up to him with a knife and grabbed him and said give me your money he's a thief and uh, this student said okay here's my wallet and uh, the thief opened the wallet and there's only twenty dollars in it um, the thief said why is there so little money you're from Asia all Asians are rich <laughs> All Asians from rich backgrounds, why have you got so little money? He said, well, I am from Asia, I'm from Thailand, but I'm here on a government sponsorship. They only give you just enough money for the tuition fees, for the accommodation, nothing extra. And my family is very poor, so that's all I've got. So the thief said, what are you going to spend $20 on? He said, well, I buy eggs, I'm on my way to the supermarket, I'm going to buy eggs and I can buy enough eggs for a whole week so I can have food for a week. And the thief said, really? That's how you live? <laughs> <laughs> then at that moment, because he's still holding him with a knife to his neck, the security guard at the gate of the university saw this and so he started to phone the police. So the Thai guy, the student, said, no, no, don't call the police. This is my friend. And the, the security guard said, okay. The thief goes, what do you mean I'm your friend? I'm trying to rob you. How come, when did, since when was I your friend? He said, well, you know, I'm sure you've got some good qualities, you're a good person, you could be my friend, you know, why, why do we have to get stressed about this? So the thief just completely kind of flipped, you know, I've never, I've never robbed anyone quite like you before. <laughs> he said, look, I've got $40, you take my $40. <laughs> So the thief ended up giving the tire man forty dollars. He said, "You go and buy yourself some good food." <laughs> so the tire guy said, oh, "That's very kind of you." And they exchanged addresses in a parted ways, peacefully, friendly. And then a few days later, the tire man had some more money, so he bought a lot of ingredients and he went around to this this other guy's house. And the other guy has got family, got wife and kids. He turned up and said, I'm going to cook you Dom Yum Gung, Thai speciality. <laughs> so he cooked his whole family this nice Thai dish and they became good friends and they started to you know, visit each other and then the Thai man eventually finished his degree or his PhD, he went back to Thailand and he still goes to visit him in America and after many years they became good friends. <coughs> And this is, you know, this is a simple story, but you know, it's quite special in the sense it just highlights you know, in every situation you can, you've got choices, haven't you? You can react with anger and fear and you know, fight or call the police, okay. But in this case, the guy just was very human and honest and friendly and a totally different outcome. And this is how we can use our mind in different ordinary situations. You know, you've always got choices. In Buddhism we call it karma, but it's just the choices you make, the decisions you make, what thoughts, what, what actions you employ in a situation. So this is why the Buddha was saying, you, know, you don't always have to suffer in a situation, you can use your mind, you can learn how to not suffer in a situation. Or you can still suffer if you wish, you know, 
we can be victims of our, our situations and things that happen and make a lot of suffering out if we wish. But we have choices here. This is where, you know, it's one thing the Buddhist teachings can help us with maybe. Blessing. Okay. Time for blessing for everyone. Yes. Um, there is some um, announcement, but should we do it after the blessing? Or? Maybe after the. Just when we receive a gift, usually we give a blessing. So, so we'll just give a blessing to you all tonight for your um, long life, good health, happiness. Any of you are still studying or success in your studies. Yatavariwaha pura paripurenti sakarang Ewa mewa itautinang petanang upakapati Ichitam patitang tumhang kipamewa samichato sape purentu sankapa Janto panaraso yatamani chotiraso yatam Sāgvāyaro gavavinā sato mātaya bhāvantvāntarāyo sukhidikāyo kopāvā abhivātana silisanicam utāpacāyinava chātāro dhamma vatantai āyuvanno sukhāng Palang bawatu sabamangalang rakantu sabadevata sababudhanu bawina sadasoti bawandide bawatu sabamangalang rakantu sabadevata Sabadhammanu bhavena sadasoti bhavantudaya Pavatu sabamangalang rakantu sabadevata 
सदा 